The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to listen to our full interview tonight, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will be able to listen to hundreds of hours of truth. Stop waiting. Subscribe today. And if you want to get in touch with me, have a guest suggestion, want to be a guest on this radio program, regardless, I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website. The information we will discuss tonight contradicts nearly everything you've been led to believe about democracy and representative government. Based on the groundbreaking research of respected historian Carol Quickly, tonight's guest has written a book titled Tragedy and Hope 101, and it reveals an unimaginably devious political system, skillfully manipulated by a handful of elite, which is undermining freedom and democracy as we know it. The goal of those who control the system, in Quickly's own words, is to dominate all habitable portions of the world using deception theft, and violence. They have achieved more towards this goal than any rulers in human history. However, the information age is quickly derailing their plans. The immorality of their system and those who serve it has become nearly impossible to hide. Awareness and resistance are growing. Tragedy is yielding to hope. And to tell us more tonight, special guest is Joseph Plummer, a civic-minded writer and entrepreneur who has written on topics ranging from alcohol and drug abuse to achieving personal and financial success. From government criminality and fraud to the debt-based Federal Reserve. In April 2012, he published his first novel, Leaving the Illusion, and his most recent book entitled Tragedy and Hope 101 provides readers an easy introduction to Cal Quigley's massive tome, Tragedy and Hope, and it will be the focus of tonight's discussion. His website is joeplumber.com, and he joins us directly from Grafton, Ohio. Hello, Joseph, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm doing good, Mel. It's a pleasure having you on. Uh, For the longest time, I've been wanting to read Tragedy and Hope, but it's 1,300 pages long, folks. And with my schedule constraints, it's been an impossibility. So recently, I was at a conference in Philadelphia, and somebody handed a card to me and said, you must interview this author. And it's Joseph Plummer, who's delighting us with his presence here today. Now, 
Professor Carr Quickly, again, Tragedy and Hope, 1,348 pages long. So I presume this is one of the reasons why most people have not read it. But you have, Joe, and you have summarized it in about 200 pages. When and why did you decide to do this? Well, for a while now, I've been working on trying to help people understand this system, this illegitimate system that we're all living under. And there's a lot of really good information out there from very reputable sources like Carol Quigley. But unfortunately, the form that it's in might as well be inaccessible. So, for instance, you know, a 1300 page book of small print written by, uh, you know, a, a dry toned academician is not going to get a lot of airtime. It's not no. going to get a lot of eyeballs. So uh, it was something that, as far as I was concerned, had to be done. And, and you know, there's it just there are some books that had been written none dare call it conspiracy and the naked capitalists would be similar books but i just kind of wanted to uh go through it maybe bring a little bit of a different angle to it and critique some of uh quigley's assertions in a different way and present the information in a different way and kind of bring it up to date also to include uh, other information give us some information about professor Carr quickly before we begin Okay, well, Quigley was a very well-respected uh, historian. He taught at Georgetown University for about 30 years. He was educated at Harvard, uh, taught at Harvard, taught at Princeton, um, advised the Department of Defense, uh, advised the Smithsonian Institute. So this was a very well-connected, well-credentialed Ivy League historian. And so that's what really brings so much weight to his account of what's going on and how governments actually operate, because he was one of the few in that circle of influence, that, that Ivy League higher echelon, that wasn't afraid to talk about things like secret societies and how a small group of individuals can get together and literally dominate the globe. You know, not just individual nations, but by securing control of the most powerful nations can uh, affect the policies that affect billions and billions of people. So uh, that's as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the things that makes Quigley so valuable. Um, he was very close to this network of individuals, and he agreed in large part with much of what they believed and how they th thought things ought to be. So, for instance, that the electorate isn't particularly uh, worthy of much respect, and clearly these uh, experts should be the ones who direct policy. But it, it's clear to me, at least, I'm not as hard on Quigley as some of the others have been. It's clear to me that he was highly conflicted, and uh, he ultimately, you know, he was invited in because he was in that circle and they need, you know, they've always brought in people from their individual disciplines. And uh, he ultimately betrayed their trust because he uh, decided to expose them. And he did this not only in Tragedy and Hope, but also in the Anglo-American establishment. And the Anglo-American establishment is a, is a much more detailed, focused account of this network. Now, former President Clinton, he always talked about Quigley, even during his 92 Democratic Convention inauguration uh, speech. He mentioned yeah. him. Now, he was a student of Quigley and considered Quigley a mentor. Do you notice or have you noticed how Quigley's influence shaped Clinton's presidency for the better or worse? 
Uh, well, I, I personally don't believe that any of the people that make it to that level are anything more than puppets that are there to carry <laughs> out the, the policies of, of the network. So, and if they don't, they wind up like Kennedy in Dealey Plaza. So, you know, if they, if they actually go against what's expected of them and they start to ignore their advisors, advisors I put in quotes, scare quotes, <laughs> their, their advisors that, that are there to tell them what they're supposed to say and what policies they're supposed to be pursuing, uh, I think things don't turn out too well for them. I remember the comedian Bill Hicks when he used to uh, talk about how any president after JFK, after being elected, they would go to a room in the White House and some uh, yeah. some group of people would show them the Kennedy assassination video and they would say, any questions, Mr. President? Sure. Sure. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous to assume that the president... Uh, especially any of these characters that are trotted out by the mainstream media, you know, the, the ones that people get to choose from. There may be some people out there. I think Ron Paul could have actually done a decent amount of damage before they killed him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But, um, you know, no, the, the standard issue uh, establishment top tier candidates, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold my breath for anything significant to happen there as far as disrupting the major policies that are important and are put in place by this, uh, by these experts. Now this term, the network, which is prevalent yeah. in your book, what is the network? Well, I, I use the term the network because it's just easy yeah. and Wigley actually uses it as well. He calls it the Milner group and he calls it, uh, you know, a couple other He uses a couple other terms, but he also uses the network, and I think that that's probably the easiest way to describe it. Um, depending on where you want to start, the initial beginning of this network was with Cecil Rhodes and a handful of uh, elite uh, aristocratic, you know, well, the, the upper echelon of, of English society uh, got together and decided that they literally wanted to dominate all habitable portions of the world and that was the secret society that they founded so that's I, i'm i'm clearly not referring to them specifically since they're all dead and gone but what they created the instruments that they went on to create so they started with what quigley calls well there's the pilgrim society and then they go into the, these round table groups and then from the round table groups you start to get into some things that people have probably heard of like the cfr and the Royal Institute uh, for International Affairs. And, uh, you know, from there, you know, the CFR, we get the CIA. The CFR was heavily involved in the war and peace studies. And out of that, we get the CIA and the NSA. And so essentially, uh, not to mention the Federal Reserve System, the income tax, all of these things were all facilitated by this group of individuals who sought out Uh, in their own words, to dominate all habitable portions of the world. And the, the way in which they felt they needed to do this was through secret economic and political influence and through uh, secret control of journalistic, educational, and propaganda agencies. So those are quotes from Quigley, that this is how they knew, you know, everything would have to be done deceptively in order for them to succeed. And through that process, you know, gaining control of the U.S. State Department and uh, gaining control of, uh, like, for instance, in 1912 with the election of Woodrow Wilson, where they split the vote to get Woodrow Wilson in there. Out of that, they were able to get their Federal Reserve System in place. They were able to get the income tax in place. Yep. That provided the primary funding mechanism 
for this uh, what's essentially a, a, a global sovereignty destruction project because you know clearly if uh, you want to rule the world you have to have one central global authority you can't have truly independent nations um, the the income tax and the Federal Reserve system provided the funding for that project which has been ongoing ever since now but 100 plus years 103 now, when I think of the time before, well, before 1913, before we had the Federal Reserve Act and the Tax Revenue Act, I wonder, because we were already a superpower. Our economy was doing great. We had the healthy growth. We didn't need income tax, right? No. Yeah. No, of course not. They wanted income tax because it's another source of revenue. That's one of the things that I critique Quigley on. <clears throat> Quigley has the sense to see that what these people have achieved is dangerous, and, and he draws a lot of reasonable conclusions. But one of the conclusions he draws that I disagreed with was he thought, you know, that the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and these other titans that were powerful at the time, <clears throat> excuse me, must have lacked power, or else they would have stopped the income tax. But that doesn't make any sense because it, it, any anything that brings more money into a system that these people control only empowers those people. So I don't think he really went far enough in even assessing his own assertions. Again, if I am, uh, let, let's assume there's an oligarchy and that oligarchy has wealth. Let's, let's assume that maybe it has to pay a small percentage of that wealth. And I say that because they put in place tax exempt foundations to shield their wealth before the income tax came into, in, into being. So that's a whole other angle to all of this. Which is one thing that, that the Clinton family learned very well from quickly. Sure. So that, you know, there's that side of it. But even if they did, even if they were paying some exorbitant amount of money yearly, what difference does it make if they're confiscating tens of billions, then hundreds of billions, and then trillions of dollars, which is where we're at annually now, confiscating trillions of dollars that they, through their instruments and in directing policy, are able to uh, spend as they see fit. It's works perfectly well. It's it's a cover. It's okay, this is going to get the, the wealthy people, but at the end of the day, all it does is dump literally trillions of dollars into this, into these instruments that they've created that they can then uh, wield in a way that they want and, and to achieve things that they would be completely unable to achieve without that, without those trillions of dollars. And not only did we not need the income tax, if we needed more revenue, we could have just printed our own currency without paying interest to a private entity, the Federal Reserve, which is not federal, nor does it have reserve. But you mentioned the CIA. I wanted to ask you, before the CIA, we had the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. Sure. Do you think the CIA has gone gone rogue now? I believe they were all instruments of the exact same network, Mel. So, yes, it, it isn't even that they've gone rogue. They were established with the intent to dominate all habitable portions of the world. I always come back to that quote because that quote is as clear cut as you can possibly get. That is specifically what the, the stated goal was. So if, if this network of individuals, they, let's assume the first form that maybe we would have seen here in the United States would have been the inquiry. The inquiry then becomes, so the inquiry is in Woodrow Wilson's, uh, 
in Woodrow Wilson's administration, and they're the experts that are going to go hammer out the, the first attempt at this uh, supranational structure, which would have been the League of Nations. The, first, you have the inquiry, and then the inquiry directly, this is even on the CFR's website, becomes the CFR. And then the CFR and others within this within this network are talking specifically about, uh, you know, the need to destroy sovereignty. Why would they do that? Well, that's because that's exactly what the whole purpose of what they're doing is. The whole purpose of what they're doing is to create a supranational structure that they will control. So in order to do that, you can't have sovereignty. You can have the illusion of sovereignty, maybe, but you can't really have sovereignty. And they're, and they're actually beginning to drop any pretense of that. So again, like look at the CIA as an instrument of people who want to destroy sovereignty. It has nothing to do with protecting us. It has nothing to do with protecting the United States. And if you go to the, um, what was it, 2008, I believe, the CFR has, obviously the League of Nations didn't go as far as they wanted. Then they create World War II, and then we get the United Nations, which they actually were able to pull the United States in on that, and they made a lot of progress. But in 2008, they were already discussing about the inadequacies of the, that particular instrument for uh, what they call world order. They don't say new world order, and they don't say global government, but they say global governance and world order in the 21st century. And in it, they explicitly are, are dropping any pretense of maintaining U.S. sovereignty. They're explicitly saying that U.S. sovereignty is a problem if the U.S. is to play an important role in this new emerging structure. They explicitly say that the Constitution is a problem. They explicitly say that legal traditions and separation of powers and all of these things are problems that have to be dealt with if the U.S. is going to uh, play any meaningful role in this world that they're creating. So, again, it's, it's kind of good and I don't know, kind of bad, depending on how you look at it. They're really uncloaking, and the information is there if people just want to read it and trace it back. That's one of the things I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to show uh, where these these instruments, who created them. Clearly, they wouldn't have created them to be used against their own interests. They used them to to help them achieve what they set out to do. I remember George... H. W. Bush on September 11th, 1990, and we know what happened exactly 11 years later, but saying that we need a new world order and we will have it. Do you remember those words? Yeah, I've, there's been a lot of people who have said it. You know, it's, it's been uh, but the timing, demonized. The timing, 11 yeah. years to the day of 9-11-01. Yeah, ah, well, there's a lot of coincidences. There's people who actually research the the numerology aspect of it. I haven't got into it because to me it's, it's irrelevant. I, I, I mean, I could see how it would be interesting, but it's, it doesn't lend any more weight to the reality, which is that these people are sociopaths and they're dangerous and they will murder innocent people and lie and cheat and steal and torture and, and whatever it takes in order to achieve what they want. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the numerology and the fact that maybe they're attracted to 11s and 9s and things like that it's, it could be interesting. And it, it definitely it is kind of odd 
But the bottom line is we're going to have to, regardless of what their fetish is with numbers, we're going to have to figure out a way to expose and weaken them, or we're all in big trouble, I think. Now, it seems that a, well, you use the word sovereignty, and this is one of my favorite words, really, but it seems that a... Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.